Hey everyone, Derek here from Conspirituality. I didn't grow up in a very culinary family, but my Eastern European roots did afford me the ability to cook a pretty good chicken paprikash. It's actually one of the few meals from my upbringing that I was very fond of. And I like to prep all of my food in advance, usually hours before, so that way when I get down to cooking, it's all ready for me. In fact, I used all of the chicken in my last shipment of ButcherBox to cook chicken paprikash. It is definitely a favorite here. ButcherBox really allows you to have everything on hand so that when you are ready to make your meal, you pop out of the freezer, give it a day, and you're ready to go. Right now, ButcherBox is offering Conspirituality listeners your choice of a weeknight meal must-have for free in every order for a whole year. So that's either three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or a pound of steak tips. Plus, you'll get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for the Jordan 
Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone, welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. You can stay in touch with us at conspirituality.net, where all of our episodes are housed, as well as our research projects and resource pages that we have there. We are on plenty of social media, including Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, where we seem to be most active recently, and that is awesome. And you can support us at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where we also offer bonus content every weekend for subscribers. And I just want to mention that we have been rolling out Monday bonus episodes. That's an opportunity for us to take some of the ideas we have and explore them. One of us tackles it each week. Matthew had a wonderful episode this week about bullying. And I think maybe as we progress in this episode, we'll talk a little bit about, I know I have some ideas about last night's vice presidential debate, how that Mm. came through, but he offered a wonderful big picture synopsis on the nature of bullying and then how that has played into our perceptions of Bill Gates and Joe Biden over these last couple of years, especially heating up now as we head toward the election and a possible COVID vaccine as we keep that developed. Yeah, really nice work, Matthew. I highly recommend everyone check that out. Well, thank you both. Yeah, thanks. Episode 20, The Second Wave. Pastel Q goes undercover. The reality of a second COVID wave started back in the spring. Now that over half of American states are experiencing increased cases, the conspiracy theories are surging. At least 32 White House staff and allies, as well as the president and his wife, have tested positive, likely originating in an unmasked, close-quartered, uh, close-quartered super-spreader Rose Garden celebration of Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. As Trump poses for wheezing, conquering hero propaganda following his questionable return from Walter Reed, another type of second wave is being led by brand-washed conspiritualists. Yoga and wellness loyalists are pushing back against criticism of their use of Q hashtags while reveling in mask opposition, anti-vaxxer agendas, and the distorted slacktivist approach to child trafficking that forms the foundation of QAnon. Pastel Q is surging. This week, I investigate the truly terrifying Line in the Sand online conference, which featured friends of the pod Mickey Willis, Zach Bush, Christiane Northrup, and many others. Matthew focuses on the chaos of charismatic leadership, weighing Trumpian dynamics with the likes of Chogyam Trungpa and Yogi Bhajan. Derek explores the importance of creativity in the time of quarantine as a lead-in to his interview with musician and former cult member Ben Lee. The entire crew also discusses Yoga Journal following the lead of the New York Times and Rolling Stone by reporting and then bearing the backlash on yoga community leaders taking a stand against QAnon and then getting trolled by Q devotees in the process. (laughs) 
This weekend, I took a look at the Line in the Sand online conference that was hosted for four hours by a website or a group called Reclaim Your Lives. The banner at the top of the website has these three phrases, health, sovereignty, civil liberties, and freedom of speech. Guests included Mickey Willis, RFK Jr., Zach Bush, Christiane Northrup, Pam Popper, Rashad Buttar, Del Bigtree, and many others, a veritable who's who of our conspirituality uh, pantheon. Here are some examples or contextual quotes that I pulled out just to give you a flavor, guys. This was something else. This is from Sasha Stone, who's the main host. So he was on camera the whole time talking to each of these different people. We are involved in civil disobedience for our health and basic human freedoms, which some say makes us domestic terrorists. We welcome domestic terrorists to this panel. And that was as he was bringing in a new guest. Wow, that's and tasteful. Then, I know, fantastic. And then Tara Thornton, who has a group called Freedom Angel, had this to say, all COVID vaccines will use nanotechnology to forever alter what human beings are. And once we step through that door, we can't go back. So we need to be there, not just in Congress, but in churches and neighborhoods, because public health is the hub of the wheel through which they are implementing these control measures. So, so does everybody just nod their heads and say, yes, of course, nanotechnology is going to be a feature of all COVID vaccines, and we know that to be a fact? And Oh, yeah. No, that, that, was, that was actually a really – I'm so glad you asked that, Matthew, because that was a distinguishing feature of this event, is that there were, there were mostly two guys, Sasha Stone and David Martin, who were sitting there the whole time talking to guests, and they, they just would nod and say yes or go beautiful. Uh, to whatever people said, there wasn't really a whole lot of back and forth unless it was to reinforce and up the ante on the crazy. Right, right. So so were the beautiful comments kind of like, uh, thank you for sharing as though it was kind of like a, like a, I don't know, a therapy circle as well, or? Not, not so much therapy, more like we have this shared uh, dark utopian vision, right? Right. And David Martin, he's the guy in Plandemic who we see suiting up in cufflink, in the bow tie and the cufflinks and stuff like that, and the really beautiful shoes, and he kind of comes off like a CI agent or something like that but absolutely absolutely clean shit clean shaven bow tied and the whole like you know men's like magazine sort of preview right now but but his whole i he was the most confusing character of the bunch because he was there ostensibly to talk about um patent law Mm -hmm. uh and how you know Pharma companies uh, have to actually patent their research in order to protect their IP as they develop medications. But there was some convoluted argument about how that meant that they kind of came to own the viruses so that they could promulgate them through the world or something like that. I, I didn't understand what he was saying. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's hard to understand. I, th- I think that besides his appearance in Plandemic, he's most well known for a really long YouTube video, again, suited up, wearing the bow tie, standing right. outside, uh, basically just spouting legalese for 20 or 30 minutes about all the different ways, all these different allegations against the government and the CDC and Big Pharma, uh, right. just using, I, th- I think, intentionally confusing uh, legal language. Right. One of the people that I know listeners of the podcast have actually DM'd us about most is Sasha Stone, who is somebody I don't know much about. Do you have some insights into who he is and his role in all of this? 
Yeah, you know, I actually wanted to focus in on an interaction that Sasha and David have with someone named Keith, uh, Kevin Jenkins. So let me talk about Sasha a little bit here. So Sasha used to be, I'm not familiar with this period of his career or with the band, but he was in a rock band called Stone. And so he still, Sasha Stone still looks like a rock star. He looks like he's just come back from Burning Man. He's He's got the outfit. He's got the like vest and the exposed shirt. He's got the long hair. He's that kind of guy, about 55 now, but he's still, he still really rocks that look and it works. Uh, he's the founder of a, something called the New Earth Festival, which happens now. I think it's happened a couple times before in other places, but last year it happened at the luxury eco resort that he owns called Akasha New Earth Haven, which of course is in hippie New Age sanctuary, Bali. Ubud, to be exact, Ubud. right? Ubud which, which, is, which is where they had the COVID kirtan a couple of months ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. So this is a seven-day super spiritual, hippie, psychedelic, you know, spiritual New Age-seeming festival. The focus is listed as being beauty, art, consciousness in action through the mediums of film, music, fashion show, international DJs, meditation workshops, and festivals. And then at this huge event, he has speakers like Del Bigtree and other lesser-known uh, conspiracists and purveyors of pseudoscience. But most notably, one of the guests listed, I think for last year, was Russell Simmons. I found that in t- that there were, in 2017, 2,000 attendees wow. to this seven-day event, and that they had expected 5,000 last year, although I didn't find any numbers on what the attendance ended up being. So, you know, interesting guy. And in a way, he's the kind of, he's the kind of guy we, we, you could imagine we would have dreamed up as a perfect exemplar of conspirituality, right? Yeah. What, what, what did he talk with David and Kevin about? So they're in, interviewing Kevin Jenkins. And Kevin Jenkins runs something called the Urban Health Alliance. And their mission statement is advancing nonpartisan policies that try to help urban families. And if you really look at it and you listen to him for a little bit, you find it's basically anti-vax for black folks and encouragement to begin homeschooling. And here's how you do it, right? Wow, okay. They also have a current lawsuit against the state of New Jersey seeking to, quote unquote, preserve the right to go back to school. Home state, shout out to Christy Todd Whitman, who came out against Trump. Uh, having grown up <laughs> under her reign, I will be, this is the first time in my life that I agree with her. Um, but there, there are, yeah, there You're are, the there side. are definitely segments of New Jersey that would agree with the anti-vax sentiments, unfortunately. I, I don't really get it though. So, so the Urban Health Alliance is um, both advocating for homeschooling, but also the right to go back to schools because lockdown because, <laughs> because lockdown should end. So, the both at the same time, or both at the same time? Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. I think right. I think the homeschooling is is probably uh, preparation for the fascism of a mandated vaccine, right? So if your kids are not able to go to school, you'll be prepared to keep them in the home sort of thing. So, you know, they're having, they're having their kind of predictable conversation about this sort of stuff. But this is the point that really jumped out at me. After some discussion, this is Sasha Stone. And he did this multiple times over the four hours where he would basically pull back and say, okay, I'm going to say the thing that you are not allowed to say. 
right? He, so, so like a nod and a wink, like we're both on board with this. And this really fits with what we're talking about today with regard to Pastel Q kind of going undercover because no one talked about QAnon. No one mentioned any QAnon hashtags that I found. I didn't watch the whole four hours, but that was not the tone. So after some discussion, here he is. Rather than pushing back against legislators, and let me also say, this guy is from my home country. He's from Zimbabwe, so it's very weird. And, and I'm, a, I'm a former rock musician, too. It's very weird to hear his accent saying this stuff with the long hair. Rather than pushing back against legislators, why not get rid of them altogether? I mean, for the love of God, when we're dealing with treason, it doesn't get more serious than that when we deal with agendas which are leading to genocide by any other name. Oh, wow, yeah, sure. It's about eradication. It's about a wholesale takedown of the godless, goddamn toxin in our civilizational midst. We should not be negotiating with any ambiguity. This is a Leviathan. This is a Medusa, and we need to take it out altogether. Now, I love the beautiful messaging we've gotten from all the experts coming on today, building up a holographic picture of Christed consciousness, of the righteous aspects of the human spirit. We all know how this thing ends. We all know that righteousness and good prevails. We even wrote that script in some ways at the collective oversoul level. Everyone nods and smiles. Kevin responds, Kevin Jenkins, you bring in a good point. I was in Trenton with some freedom patriots, people fighting for their medical freedoms, fighting for their religious and constitutional rights. One of the things I remember saying is, don't let them be comfortable. Go where they live. Go where they eat. They should oh not gosh. feel comfortable. We should fight them everywhere they live. If they go to the bathroom, we should be there. Sasha, right. Jenkins, if they go to get a cup of coffee, you know, every time I talk to you, you bring this out of me, Sasha, and I actually agree with you. This is a fight for everything we hold dear. I want to say to all the parents who are wondering what to do, one simple thing. You have to fight for your children. These elected officials believe they can get away with anything because we will intellectualize our narrative as opposed to challenging them. And then he leans forward with a smirk and says, we can challenge them in a very interesting way. Let's just put it that way. It's time to stop being politically correct. It's time to start looking them in the face and saying, if I can't live my humanity, you won't survive. Oh, my God. David, so, Martin, so, David Martin, beautiful. Okay, that's an example of the beautiful. <laughs> thank you for sharing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so at what point during the four hours does this, does this come in? And, and do any of the following speakers kind of log off and say, I, I don't really... I don't really want to uh, take oh, part anymore. Absolutely not. The thing that was right. fascinating about that is this is at about an hour and 40 minutes in. Yeah. And when he finishes that, they bring in the next guest. And Sasha immediately pivots to introducing the next guest, who's a guy from South Africa, by the way, who part of his sort of bio and his mission statement is that he's committed to nonviolent change. So they immediately shift to like, oh, let's talk about this really wonderful spiritual political activist in South Africa who's committed to a nonviolent vision of our beautiful future. And they bring him in and he doesn't say anything about what was just said, but goes right into his conspiracy stick. <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. I, 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 I can't believe what you just read. It's inc so incredibly menacing and threatening. And do you have the sense that it's play acting? Or do you have the sense that, that he's got some underworld 
I don't know, ex rock star connections that, you know, want to kidnap, you know, Governor Whitman. Well, I mean, that's, that's where I was going to go in response to what you're saying. You know, it, it doesn't seem like play acting. It does sound like hyperbole. It's definitely very, uh, uh, militant. Right. Yeah. And then, and then come to find out this morning that there was this, uh, this plan, this actual plan that was thwarted. Right. Yeah, were you ref- did you mistake Whitman for Widmore there? Okay, I did. no, no, I'm I was just sorry, making sure because yeah. I said Whitman before probably seated You're that. Right. But uh, Julian, now a number of the people that you mentioned are Trump adjacent here, and you know, last night in the vice presidential debate. Pence was lying about how soon a vaccine is coming. Trump today recorded a video saying that all seniors in America will receive the same exact medication that I got for free. And then he qualified it by saying soon. Uh, So there's this, there's this constant, you know, there, the administration is obviously pushing for a vaccine. They're lying about it because they want the American people to think that they're going to magically spin it up and we'll all be safe by election day. Did you notice any pushback because a lot of these people are Trump aligned and how do they, so this is a question we've asked before, but how do, yeah. how does the QAnon set square the fact that their savior is also very, uh, very aggressive in terms of vaccine development right now? Well, again, I think part of what's going on right now, and, and this this conference for me was a perfect example of it, is that there's no mention of Donald Trump, and there's no mention of QAnon. There's none of the hashtags. There's none of the rallying cries. There's just this conversation about f- f- civil rights, freedom of speech, health, sovereignty, uh, and and just about everyone has something to say about vaccines that is that is ominous and negative. Uh, so yeah, how they square that stuff is beyond me. Did you get any sense of who the they are then? Because when you were reading Stone's quote, you kept saying they, they. If it's not the Trump administration, mm-hmm. do you know who it is? Was that at all made explicit? Well, let me let me continue on a little bit here because he had some other things to say. Overall. I would say this was the classic tone through the through the couple hours that I was able to sit through without you know having uh, having to completely thank you for your uh, sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> the the overall tone was very much that classic paranoid explanatory style, right, where everything leads back to some shadowy cabal of people follow the money, but nothing is nothing is being explicitly claimed about their identity even though incredibly gruesome and dark uh, agendas and actions are being are being uh, ascribed to them right very very strange so of course our friend christiane northrup made an appearance as well uh here here's a little exchange that that her and sasha had actually her sasha and david again she says when you give birth normally you arise from the birthing bed so empowered that no one can talk you into this vaccine nonsense Women need men to stand up and protect the innocent. That's masculinity. When this started, I didn't know where it would end, but I knew astrologically we were in a chrysalis and we'd all come out of this like a butterfly around December 21st. But now they're trying to separate COVID positive women from their babies. Please, God, make it stop. So again, they, right? Now they're trying to separate. Please, God, make it stop. The mother's body is the earth to the baby. And then the earth is the microbiome that Zach Bush talked about. Sasha, 
Thanks, Christiane. You know, 2,300 years ago before Islam, the Arabic people discovered that by forcing people to cover their nose and mouth, you broke their will and depersonalized them. It made them submissive. Modern psychology now understands that without a face, you are not an independent being. The child between two and three years old looks in the mirror and discovers themselves as an independent being. The mask is the beginning of deleting individuality, and he who does not know his history is doomed to repeat it. So is that a backhand uh, criticism of Islam? Was he basically saying the whole tradition of masking, which predominantly affects women, but in Torah culture affects men? Was that was it? Was he being Islamophobic in that sense? He was. He was actually quite careful in terms of some of the surrounding language and the way he he sort of navigated that the possibility of that. Yeah, yeah. So David Martin, this is how they gain control over our minds at such an early age. They're mandating masks for two year olds. Christiane, people are very spiritual. They go to their yoga retreats and everything. But it, when it comes to their physical body, they cave in every time. That's how effective the medical industrial complex has been. Wait, wait, did, did, didn't they go to the retreats in their physical bodies? <laughs> I don't didn't know. They, didn't they go to the Akasha New Earth Haven in their bodies, or did they teleport there? Or are they doing all of the, the retreats now by Zoom? Or Well, it's some combination of Zoom and, and you know, out-of-body uh, astral traveling, right? That's incredible. Okay, all right, yes. Sorry, sorry Dr. Northrup, I, I didn't mean they believe in affirmations in Jesus. So this is very interesting. She's weaving in, right? Yoga retreat, yeah. Jesus, affirmations. But when it comes to their body, Father Pharmaceutical knows better. Then she goes off on how the Rockefellers shut down homeopathy and naturopathy in the 20s and how she became an insider in the medical establishment so as to be able to help people take back their sovereignty. Then Sasha says, I can say things that maybe you can't. So, oh, okay. so let's call wow. this what it is. We are being cult programmed. This is satanic programming, and it gets very gory in the basement. This is Baphomet, and many millions of souls have been ritually sacrificed. Do, does she? And does she, how does she? Does she nod? Does she? Oh yeah, she's just she's just nodding. There was there was right. no. Uh, follow-up question to that statement. And they they specifically said the Rockefeller shut down homeopathy. Yep. Because that's that's, that's not actually what happened. Homeopathy was a, a burgeoning Wait a minute, industry. Are you fact-checking them? <laughs> Get out of here! Come on. Homeopathy in the 19th century. There were a number of homeopathy hospitals and clinics in the 19th century in America, and then germ theory became more widespread. And actual hospital actual hospitals didn't actually start till about 100 years ago around the world, but in America, and that's when homeopathy started to sputter. So it didn't have anything to do with the. I mean, of course, like anything, they might have promoted hospitals. They might have had a hand in healthcare, but that was already a dying train. It wasn't until I think about the 50s when homeopathy started having a resurgence. Mm-hmm. So. So that's just absolute nonsense that that claim not yeah. that all the other claims aren't but when these things it's just they just make things up all the she time probably had rockefellers and rothschilds on like flashcards just to try and get them in at some point because that's the audience right yeah 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 so that's my that's my sordid tale of uh learning about the line in the sand conference so but it's it does sound like it does sound like the stone is kind of like the hub for um, a very solid uh, 
soft cue push uh, and and is anchoring every conversation back to well this is what you know I'm allowed to say and you're not allowed to say from the perspective of your discipline what allows him to say what he's saying like what why is he so free I think it's I think it's that he doesn't give a fuck right okay. they have they have careers like he's he's gotten to the point where he's uncancelable or something okay. and they have careers right. where they have to be very politically correct uh, up to a point well, this is where I have some questions about the money because um, you know I took a look at a cash New Earth Haven, at least you know a brief look at some of their materials, their marketing materials, and then also their their uh, investment pitch in the buildings that they are. Th- I think they're offering on site, but also uh, they are offering the designs for uh, export as well. Um, anyway, it's uh, an eco resort. Um, I don't really know what that term means, uh, especially when it's something that that uh, you have to fly to. Um, you know, it's obviously set up for the global wealthy, for trustafarians and and whoever else can 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 spend the money to do there. It also means that, like, you know, we know who's doing the laundry. Um, but you know, if you have five thousand people coming to your, was it? Oh no, sorry, that was the expected attendance of yeah, this year's twenty nineteen. Yeah, twenty seventeen was two thousand. So twenty twenty seventeen. Now, I I don't think that it doesn't look like that center would have accommodated all of those people, but um, certainly that would have been a huge revenue generator uh, for. Uh, a center like that. And I'm wondering if the pandemic has crashed uh, revenues at a place that's now very vulnerable because he's been doing a lot of building. I think that they only opened in 2016 uh, and it's gorgeously appointed. Well, I tell you what, this, well, one thing jumped out of me that I thought was that that's completely like (laughs) sort of off topic, but it's, it's just noticing uh, when you uh, th- there, there's a way that that this group of people together almost sound like they should actually be at a porn conference, right? It's Pam Popper and Del Bigtree and Sasha Stone, <laughs> Zach Bush. <laughs> they all have these names, these lurid names, and then for for many of them, there's the double, or for some of them, there's the double, you know, like Pam Popper, right? Right. right. And there, and this this makes me think of how uh, since the '90s or or like the early 2000s. A, a big kind of convention that in the first wave of like online sales and becoming a coach who has a huge following is that you have one of these kinds of names, right? You change your name. You have an online persona that has a name with the, with the, the first and the last name, but it's both starting with the same letter and that has some kind of edgy kind of quality like this. And it, what you were just saying made me think of how the model in the last five or 10 years has been that you have these huge free online summits. And what's the point of the online summit? You bring all these different people together and you get their email lists, right? right? So I I have a feeling you're right that Sasha Stone is probably desperate that this this thing is going to fall through because of the loss of revenue due to the pandemic and he's probably doing everything he can to try and build a bigger audience and and sell things or he might be independently wealthy we have no idea how his rock career went i mean who knows there might be money there and this might be actually a labor of love but it's it is you know it's a it's an it's an interesting to think thing to think of that basically a hospitality uh business is has now launched into the online summit uh, um, you know, I- environment. There's there might there might be a linkage there. Well, there's definitely something there around the intersection of entrepreneurial online business and marketing 
and this political conspiritualist kind of narrative, right? I mean, you know, if if this does have to, if this does have the the sort of driver uh, or the driving behind it of we need a new project and there we have to go online with with and create new online streams. I mean, we're in the yoga industry and that's collapsed. And so, you know, I empathize with that. And here I am, here I am with, with you both trying to make this work yep. in some way. I get the improvising thing. I get the, the, totally. the feeling of treading water, yeah. but you know, it's like, you know how gross it feels to know that Trump is $400 million in debt to somebody. Um, like what might be going on when a, when, when a, you know, the, the, the drive to assemble this all-star cask the cast is is actually financial. And I also think it makes me think about the fact that these guys always go on and on about how big pharma is monetizing illness. Um, but, you know, this is happening all over the place and, and none of these folks are absolved of the gross paradoxes of capitalism. Um, you know, and as for eco-resort folks, the, the paradoxes are actually worse because... You know, a place like New Haven, uh, or is it called New Earth Haven? It carries the promise of world renewal. Uh, I mean, that's the entire marketing pitch. Is you know, this is a this is a place of bioresonance and bioharmony, and you know, we seek to create. It's very vague. We seek to create you know elevated community. Um, but I mean, it's it's a it's a tourist uh, venue in Ubud, and that makes it just as dirty and carbon heavy as everything else. So I don't know. I, mean, I was just thinking about this this week that when I watch a commercial for Pfizer, um, you know, like Lyrica or something like that, uh, the what's being sold to me in the visuals is a kind of relaxation and relief that would come from the medication. And, and there might be some sort of pathetic fallacy in the way that it's shot, like some sort of resonance between how the medication is making me feel better and how the weather is improving or something like that. But Pfizer isn't telling me that it's going to change the world or bring about a new era of human consciousness. So, so I really, you know, all these people complaining about, about big pharma making money. Yes, of course, many, many problems, but what's worse? Pfizer trying to sell you pills? Well, and I'll, and I'll add to that, Matthew, is that the, at the, at the end of that commercial, what you're going to hear is someone at very rapid speed telling you all of the god awful things that could happen to you if you take the drug that probably happened to like one out of a hundred thousand people, but they're required to tell you. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and they're, they're so they, so in order to tell, sell you the pills, they, they have some obligation to tell you about side effects. But what, what does the, messianic wellness influencer what do they have to tell you in terms of uh their their due diligence or their responsibility um you know pfizer's selling you pills and the influencer is trying to sell you your soul back to you in some sort of future state i think it comes back to something you point out in your article about brogan which is if something bad happens due to their program or their prescription, then it's on you, something you weren't doing correctly. Right. At the very least, and again, I am in no way a fan of pharmaceutical companies in general and some of their practices, especially related to marketing, there is at least some level of accountability. Whether or not it's enforced is another question. But 
Julian is right. I mean, the way that they do it is they run off the side effects really quickly while they're showing you like these really purple images on the screen. So it's kind of very, uh, there's a lot of dissonance in it, but there is at least some oversight there. What we're talking about is a world that is enclosed and it has no oversight whatsoever. And as we've noticed more and more is just deflecting criticism pretty much on every level right now. Shortly after moving to Los Angeles in 2011, I visited the Krishnamurti Foundation in Ojai. I remember looking across the vast field next to the parking lot and imagining the philosopher reflecting on life while doing the same. Having read at least six of Krishnamurti's books, I always appreciated his no-nonsense approach to philosophy. Earlier on in my life, I had read the works of Helena Blavatsky, so I was aware of Krishnamurti's connection to an ultimate abandonment of theosophy. Then I came across Pushkin's new podcast, Into the Zone, hosted by Harry Kunzru. It's a show about opposites and how borders are never as clear as we think. As a novelist with a keen eye for a good story, he takes the listener around the world to talk to philosophers and punk musicians, new age gurus, and space explorers, and investigates the gray zone between life and death, public and private, and black and white. Really, he touches upon some of the same topics that we do here at Conspirituality. I highly suggest starting with The Guru of Ojai, where he talks about his family's own relationship to theosophy and how Krishnamurti effectively ended the organization. I was also fascinated that as deep as a philosopher as he was, Krishnamurti was also a huge fan of spy novels. Kunzru humanizes him in a way that I had never yet heard. You can subscribe to Into the Zone wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so for uh, this week in Conspirituality from here in Toronto, uh, I want to talk a little bit about how we mistake chaos for power in the bodies of charismatic men. And of course, this is in the shadow of uh, Trump's hospitalization and all of the incredible confusion that swirled around it. So I was thinking that back in, in 2016, um, there was a lot of people, and especially women, uh, who remarked online uh, on the horror of realizing that, you know, our president has a Twitter account and he's going to be tweeting at us uh, at all hours of the day and night. And it's going to feel like living with an abuser. Um, like you never know what's going to happen, but it's going to be bad and the timing will be volatile and your ability to you know recover from it is going to be really challenged and it's going to wear out over time. Now that I've noticed that that has kind of slowed up. I, I, you know, some, sometimes it's remarked upon, but for the most part, I think people are used to it and they're numb. It's been normalized. Um, you know, as somebody who researches cult leaders, uh, I have a parallel feeling, uh, about Trump, uh, and what his body does to the bodies of people around him. It's, some of it is speculative, but, but I think there's some clear uh, linkages to be made. And I can feel this most um, uh, acutely when I forget about what he's saying, I mute his voice, and I just sort of contemplate uh, how he lurches around uh, within space. Um, you know, the, the, there's this core paradox at the heart of it, which is that this guy needs to project 
infinite power whilst being completely helpless with regard to basic uh, daily tasks and bodily responsibilities. So there's this kind of like desperate projection of a thing that can't be accomplished. This guy never prepares a meal, uh, never goes shopping, never does any real childcare. Uh, there's no... There's no real life experience. If he had to camp, it would be all over. Like it would be, it would just be done. Um, so, you know, behind being $400 million in debt, um, being owned by someone else is this feeling that if he were to be penniless, that he would be completely helpless. Like he, he can't, he can't he wouldn't be able to wipe his ass uh, unless someone was cleaning his bathroom for him. So there's all of this work that has to go on around him. Uh, and, you know, cult leaders end up, uh, if, if they're going to burn hot and fast and burn out really quickly, then they go through a lot of people. They fire them. They get rid of them. Uh, the ones that have longevity keep uh, their best lieutenants close to them and uh, at least, you know, modulate the abuse with uh, a little bit of social reward so that, so that there's more security. Uh, with, with Trump, there's this revolving door because obviously, you know, he has had no limits on who he's been able to uh, recruit and pay. Um, you know, and, the, and when we're talking about class, uh, or if we think about class, the people that are around him constantly doing the actual physical labor of keeping him alive, you know, they're the Mexicans who work for him in his various uh, in his various businesses. The same people that he called rapists and murderers as he came down that gold elevator, um, and taking care of him, whoever is responsible for it, is an incredibly difficult task because he's totally out of control. Um, we know that there's no emotional or social regulation, but. You know, we also know in bits and pieces from reporting, and then we can probably just feel it to be true that 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 all has a bodily root. That this is a person who doesn't sleep. Uh, he eats crap. Uh, he's on TV and Twitter all the time. You know, he's just this kind of like totally hollow shell of puffed up performative anxiety. And so, of course, he's going to leave hospital while he's gasping for breath and try to convince himself that he's okay. In fact, it's probably essential for him that he appears on that that balcony uh, to get some sort of feedback from his followers to make him feel like he is alive. And, you know, I, I'm watching all of this because I've seen it over and over and over again in the charismatic male leaders. I And I want to just emphasize that there might be women cultic figures out there who are similar in their disorganization. I just haven't heard any of the stories. Like I'd really like to know what Teal Swan's daily uh, schedule is like, or what her diet is like, or, you know, you know, whether there's, you know, substance issues or whatever. But uh, I can tell you that from personal experience, Michael Roach, who ran the the, the neo Buddhist cult that I was recruited into, he basically never slept. He was never alone. Uh, he had young women uh, basically tied, tethered to him at you know ten to fifteen feet at all times, doing everything for him. I mean, uh, carrying his bags and his books, and making sure he had Cheerios in the morning, and making sure that he knew what gate he was going to at the airport. This is a guy who basically 
basically could just float through the world as a brain in a robe, really. And that was it. Um, then we have all these stories about Bikram Chowdhury, who also never slept, also was never alone. He's giving training programs to people over eight weeks in heated tents, and he's forcing them to stay up till three in the morning watching Bollywood films with him uh, while he makes pornographic jokes, like completely absolutely dysregulated uh, person. Yogi Bhajan was this hurricane of constant puerile demands, uh, gorging himself at all hours until his toes fell off from diabetes. Um, uh, Chogyam Trungpa, uh, who I just reported on, I wish I had been able to include some of the incredible stuff that I heard about his daily life. Um, one of the one of the interview subjects told me about being 15 years old and going over uh, to to uh, have dinner with the Mukpo family and watching Trungpa uh, smashed out of his head, trying to finish his dinner, uh, nodding off, falling over into his plate, and then finally gaining his balance and sitting up uh, and kind of murmuring to himself with a piece of cabbage sticking out of his mouth uh, and saying, uh, and, 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 and the kid the, at the time that the subject was, was, was 15 and, and they describe how, uh, you know, they were completely horrified and terrified of this man. And they asked somebody who was actually a leader in the community at the time and very close to them. They said, uh, what's going on? What's wrong with him? And they were told that this was his form of meditation. Right. And, and, uh, then he's like sleeping until six o'clock in the evening and everybody has to serve him high tea at two o'clock in the morning, but in full like dress wear. And it's just like, there's no day, there's no night. These people don't even live on a planet, right? Uh, and so, uh, Sogyal Lokar, uh, also known as Sogyal Rinpoche, the wonderful book, Tibetan book of living and dying, um, which was a bestseller. Uh, this guy is ordering filet mignon at midnight and he's sending his people out to get, you know, wine from shops at, in, at four in the morning, but bribing the, st- the shopkeepers to keep them open. And all of these men, obviously, are also uh, sexually abusing everyone they can at all times. Uh, it's just incredible. Um, Swami Vishnu Devananda, same thing. Uh, Julie Salter uh, told an incredible story about how much she had to work she had to do to keep this guy together. Um, you know, she when they were in India, uh, he, he insisted on going to India, although they didn't have any of his medications there. And he had to, you know, have dialysis and there wasn't any way of doing that. And so she's holed up in Delhi trying to get, di- you know, sort of portable dialysis equipment while he's almost dying, but he needs to go to a sacred cave and, and so on and so forth. And so there's a story after story of mainly women keeping like complete blizzards of chaotic volatility in male form under control or even alive in order to continue to uh, have this incredible influence over their circles. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's insane how these, these misogynist sociopaths, they all also preach self-responsibility while they're constantly falling apart. 
and depending on their servants, depending on, on, on women to mop them up. And the thing that is so ironic is that whatever social power their organizations have, it's, it's in spite of their own personal chaos. It's because of the silent and invisible work of the mainly women who keep them together. Uh, this is one of the things that I realized talking to Julie Salter about Swami Vishnu Devananda was that there would be no uh, Shivananda yoga organization without the women who kept this dude alive and made it look like he was actually, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the lineage holder of some reasonable content. At the end of his life, he was so addled by stroke that he couldn't even speak in a way that anybody but her could comprehend. And so she actually translated for him. So she was the voice of Swami Vishnu Devananda at the end. She was the one who made him him look good and that's what or, or made him look like he was intelligent she was the ventriloquist she was the ventriloquist exactly i mean except that except that you know she, she's doing her best to you know uh really seize the 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 essence or whatever she feels she can save from whatever it was that that he once was able to offer the world as a gift right so anyway uh it, it's just brought back a lot of watching the watching the total chaos uh, around this guy uh, and his impending death uh, or his fragile recovery, however it works out, um, it just brought about, brought back a lot of memories. There's something in this uh, about about charismatic men who can't actually exist uh, on their own. Comedy fans, listen up. I've got an incredible podcast for you to add to your queue. Nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. You probably know that I made an appearance recently on this absolutely ludicrous variety show that combines the fun of a late night show with the wit of a public radio program and the unique knowledge of a guest expert who was me at the time, if you can believe that. Brace yourself for a roller coaster ride of wildly diverse topics from Paula's hilarious attempts to understand QAnon to riveting conversations with a bona fide rocket scientist. You'll never know what to expect, but you'll know you're in for a high spirited, hilarious time. So this is comedian Paula Poundstone and her co-host Adam Felber, who is great. They're both regular panelists on NPR's classic comedy show. You may recognize them from that. Wait, wait, don't tell me. And they bring the same acerbic yet infectiously funny energy to Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. When I was on, they grilled me uh, in an absolutely unique way. <laughs> about conspiracy theories and yoga and yoga pants and QAnon and uh, we had a great time. They were very sincerely interested in the topic but they still found plenty of hilarious angles in terms of the questions they asked and how they followed up on whatever I gave them like good comedians do. Check out their show. There are other recent episodes you might find interesting as well like hearing crazy Hollywood stories from legendary casting director Joel Thurm or their episode about killer whales and killer theme songs. So nobody listens to Paula Poundstone is an absolute riot you don't want to miss. Find Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. 
Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, since people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live's Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mansukas. You may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you ever wonder about the psychology behind people joining cults, committing crimes, or adopting extreme beliefs? If so, LA Not So Confidential is the podcast for you. On each episode, this true crime and forensic psychology podcast investigates individual cases. Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh use their years of expertise as forensic psychologists to examine the psychological issues that connect with crime and dark decisions. The show is smart, curious, and a little snarky. I recommend listeners check out their episodes on pyromania. Also, body dysmorphic disorder, toxic sports parents, or erotomania, which is the delusional belief that one is loved by another person. If you love to learn and you want a deeper look into the history and psychology behind famous crimes, check out LA Not So Confidential. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. So check out LA Not So Confidential on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I think last night the vice presidential debate offered an insight into how most women experience it. Uh, I want to qualify that because with Trump, on the debate, there's so many, he's just chaos. And we know that. And a, a good amount of, uh, I'm sure a high percentage of women have had characters like Trump in their lives. Yeah. And the barometer of this for me is, is my wife who I've been with for over six years and hearing her stories, uh, being a beautiful woman who was in the modeling industry and in hospitality and being around people for most of her career until the pandemic and hearing about at she's at a director level in her career and just the way that men shut her down. And it's almost like I can't believe the story sometimes, but last night's debate really offered insight into how it happens because Trump just steamrolls over everyone. But the way that Pence actually did it is how most men, I think, do it. And the fact that Kamala just kept saying, hey, I'm talking now. It, it was so refreshing. And I know from talking to my wife as it was happening and her cheering <laughs> and then texting with my friends who are female during that or this morning about that and being like, thankfully, there's somebody who just finally put someone in their place over and over again as it deserves. But it does. And I want to ask you this, Matthew, and I want to go into a, a, just a brief story because I don't think I ever told this one, but I trained at a 
a school called Atmananda. I think it still exists. I don't know. I'm not going to say any names, but if people want to research it, I don't have any problem with that. And when I did my teacher training in 2003, there were 28 people in the program. 26 were women. There was one other man and he was in his uh, mid or late 50s. So I was in my late 20s. So I was sort of the the de facto default guy around the studio with the male leader of the studio. So he would sometimes take privilege and tell me things that he wouldn't say to anyone else because I was kind of the other guy around. And I was always eked out by it. But I remember near the end of the program, it was a six-month program, he sat there one day, his spiritual partner slash kind of wife was sitting next to him because she helped lead the program. He held up a stack of unpaid rent bills (laughs) and he said that, he made up some spiritual excuse of why he hasn't paid rent in the studio for like a year. And in my head, the first thing that happens is like 20 people, $3,000 a person for the program. Where did that money go? But, but more to the point of this is he then talked about how he could not control himself around other women and that he just felt like he should be free to have sex with whoever he wants as his partner who is supposedly pregnant. And I only say that because they never did a test and then she lost the baby in her head. So that was a weird time. But sitting next to her, listening to him say this, he ended up getting arrested because he sexually abused one of the women in the program. And we still completed the program. I guess he got off. I don't even know how all that happened. At that point, I was totally checked out and just needed to get my certificate so I could go on and leave. Yeah, But what just fascinates me by the stories that you're telling and then what I live through. And, and I know this is a naive question in some way, but how, how do people get so consumed by power or whatever that is that they don't, they don't do what Kamala did last night. They don't say, Hey man, what are you doing right now? Like, what is it going to take to shift the culture? This is this society to be able to do that. And, and what is it about that power that they hold that just holds people in this sort of deer in headlights phase? Oh, do you, so you mean you mean like when you're in your you're 23 and you're wondering like why weren't you able to intervene or to stand up or to say you know I think you're off your rocker or that's really insulting yeah. to your partner or why why weren't you I don't know I mean what, well what did it feel like at the time? It felt it felt gross. I I had I right. was very close friends. My we. We all had a partner and my partner in that program became a very close friend of mine. So we confided with each other. And as it was happening, we were just looking at each other and our, right. our, this was before the arrest. So this was a different thing, but we were just both like, we need to get out of here as soon as possible. That was our sentiment about it. Yeah. I mean, that's half, that's halfway towards a, you know, um, uh, a, a restorative response because it rejects bystanderism. It says, at least I want to, I don't want to witness this anymore. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're talking about somebody who's, who's twice your age, somebody who, you know, was teaching you something that you felt had esoteric value or that was, you know, um, you know or, or they gave him some sort of special psychological status. And so you were prepared over months to uh, not speak with him as though you were equals or as though you could give feedback or as though, you know, you were, you were, um, 
I don't know, the, the, as, though, as though you were friends or even colleagues, uh, the power dynamic sets that in motion from months prior. Uh, and yeah, I mean, and if you think about, if you think about long-term patterning, I mean, who around somebody like Trungpa or Yogi Bhajan or, you know, Sogyal Lakar or, or, you know, Donald Trump has had the time and the practice uh, and the support to be able to stand their ground and say, no, I'm speaking. Like everything in the, the guy's life is organized to eliminate the possibility that somebody's going to stand and resist, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I want to suggest here that people who, people who have a kind of uh, grandiose, narcissistic, Machiavellian, power-hungry, you know, a personality type will actively seek out positions in which they will be able to enact that that way of relating sure. and not be challenged. Right. And I think the corporate world and politics and bingo, like bright lights flashing all over the place, being a, being a spiritual leader, these are perfect places where there's some kind of way that you can veil uh, abusive power dynamics uh, through either like sp- uh, the special identity of being enlightened or the special status of being the boss, right? Yeah, and the less regulation that the particular subculture has, exactly. the less the less uh, peer review, the less exactly. the, the more charisma is the coin of the realm instead of anything yep. that anybody can objectively point to and say, "Oh, you're skilled at that," uh, and that mm-hmm. gives you value, <laughs> right? It's like it's it's the, the this dude you were you were uh, you were learning from uh, Derek. It's not like anybody got together and sort of confirmed that that he had some kind. Kind of social value that, or or intellectual value that was going to allow him to also be an asshole and get away with it. Um, so so it's not yeah. The less regulation, the more charisma, the more vulnerability uh, those positions are. To I believe you're right. The the person who seeks the position out because they'll be able to dominate with impunity. What amazed me too is he was able to get out of that, and he kept getting people to invest in the studio, buy a retreat center upstate. It just kept going and the stories kept repeating over and over. And that's what's fascinating. I'm really fascinated by, and when I talked to Ben Lee, he mentions that he's friends with Mark and Bonnie who made the uh, Nexium documentary or they're the main figure, two of the main figures in it. Uh, and watching that documentary, uh, Keith Ranieri, I, I have to check this, but my wife said he's getting out of jail soon. And I'm actually fascinated by what will happen? Will he try to reinvent himself? Like, has he learned? Oh, oh no, 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 hundred percent not. No, always goes that way. Absolutely not. No, no, no. And this and, is and I think Arthur Ray. This is Peter Popov. Right, right. And and also, yeah. I would just like to say, from the the perspective of uh, you know um, Me Too journalism, which I've been connected with through my work on on abuse in the yoga world, there really isn't any accountability. We seem to be in a golden age of cultic reporting. Uh, you know, there have been major independent investigations into new age spiritual organizations. There's been at least three over the last three years, and that's that's very new. Uh, and, you know, with Shambhala International, for example, uh, big independent investigation that basically verifies all of the accusations against the current leader, Mipam Mukpo, as being, you know, a serial abuser. Uh, and uh, what do you know? He's being invited back to uh, be everybody's tantra guru, or at least those people who are are hanging around. Now, 
you know, there are statutes of limitations that have expired and there are people who, who, you know, won't be able to, or it would be very difficult for them to prosecute or bring civil suits. But, um, you know, there is no, there's very little accountability in, in the world, I'm sorry to say. And so, so I try to turn my attention to, uh, okay, how, how do we, how do we educate people around the red flags of toxic community? Uh, apologies. Uh, he is being sentenced in October. He's been in holding. So maybe that's what uh, she was referencing. So that's, uh, right, yeah, okay, yeah. So well, he faces life in prison, which will, yeah, that, well, he'll, he'll, re- more sense. he'll reinvent himself from there. That, that's a possibility Probably. as well. Yeah. Right. Last week after the podcast, we were we were guests at the Future Self Summit. And I want to say right off the bat, this is not to knock the people who organized the summit. They're lovely people. And and they wanted to have us there to be absolutely fair to to really introduce people who were at the summit to our perspective. Uh, but it was it was a very interesting conversation. And I think, you know, we presented for a little bit and then we took questions. I think as the QA unfolded, we sort of had this realization, right? That we thought we were there to talk to the people at the summit about their friends and colleagues, about how to understand that their friends and colleagues had been red-pilled and what this really meant. But really, we realized we were talking to the friends and colleagues. And they were, they were lovely people. It was a very, it was a very kind of a respectful, sacred space type of conversation that went down. But it was, it was fascinating. And it, it underlined again the, 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 the understanding that there's, there's no mistake happening here, right? That people who see themselves as spiritual, uh, members of a spiritual community that's heading towards a, a utopian world that where we're going to create our future selves through the power of intention and love are bought into multiple aspects of conspirituality and of the Q messaging whilst not overtly identifying with QAnon per se. That was really well put. And I do want to add something I've mentioned before, but it's just indicative of the fact that when people can at least see each other, because it was on Zoom and we can all see one another, it was respectful. Even if we didn't agree, everyone listened, everyone like, and people, I even think one of the people, like when he made his point, then I reflected back about, I think it was germ theory or something. He was just like, or it might've been vaccines. I don't know, but he was like, he's shaking his head. Yes. Like it was always oh, masking. That's what it was. The anti-masking thing. Uh, and everyone was really cool. And that's why I always promoting actually talking to people instead of just yelling at each other on a screen. And this event was a good, um, but this is just indicative of that. Yeah, even the face-to-face aspect of of it being a Zoom room is different than just you know typing on a on a on a social media site, right? Oh, for sure, for yeah. sure it is. Yeah, I mean you can you can see people's you can see people breathe, you can see yeah. uh, how activated they are, you can see yeah. you know how where, your words where... land. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wanted to just say here too that that I I had this I had this sense of a a second wave as we talked about in the show notes, uh, both of an awareness of QAnon, like there's a whole new group of people who are like, oh, there's this thing called QAnon and it's making incursions into our space, but also the the pushback from people who have been affected by it, but they're like, hey, 
not all conspiracies, dude. Like, don't don't lump this stuff that I'm into in with your QAnon stuff because I'm not about all of that. Right. Um, I feel like it's important to recognize that QAnon is not a finely tuned master plot, and it's not our own conspiracy theory, right? That like Q is behind everything. Like they're actually pulling all the strings. It's much more insidious because it's it's an organic way of just exploiting something very ancient in us. Um, during this perfect time of a perfect uh, storm of collective stress. So one of the guys uh, who, who, had a, who raised his hand said, I'm not anti-mask, I'm pro-freedom, right? And then someone in the chat said, yes, and then wait. So are you saying that wearing a mask means you support QAnon? Like it was just sort of dismissing this, right? And then when that guy's turn came, he says, you know, people like me just think science and Western medicine have taken us on the wrong path away from nature. A vaccine is not going to be the answer to the pandemic that that wrong path led to. Right. So why don't you just let us take our own path? Yeah. So it's just that, that wonderful appeal to nature and that sense of we want balance and we're not, we're not monsters and I'm not on board with whatever this QAnon thing is that you're talking about. Right. Uh, another person said, you know, I don't want to take too long with this, but what about Wayfair? Sex trafficking is real and surely we have to do something about it. So these sorts of comments came up, but by far the most airtime was taken up by this very intense guy. And, and, you know, bless his heart, who told us the thing that we keep hearing lately. You can't just lump all these things together, he said. I've been, into, I've been into all of these topics for years, way before this QAnon bullshit. There is a satanic elite. I believe in the great awakening that is coming, and vaccines should be questioned. I mean, follow the money. It all goes back to Big Pharma. Some of this stuff sounds crazy, like chemtrails. I never believed in them, but then I saw it for myself. I had my own visceral experience, and I knew it was real. I mean, he basically painted a rapid-fire self-portrait of someone who never met a wild conspiracy he didn't fall in love with right away and then scolded us for not being nuanced enough to do our own research. You know, and because and because he wasn't giving a sermon on maybe the Reclaim Your Life network or he wasn't on, you know, Del Bigtree, because he was in a conversation, that, that torrent of gish-galloped uh, sort of observations yep. did not feel to me like a uh, a, a a discourse technique. It felt to me like I have an outpouring of feelings that I want to share with you in this group, and I know you're going to listen because that's what we're here for. And so I felt like I, I, I almost in a. Um, you know, it, it definitely wasn't group therapy, but what I was listening for, what I was listening for underneath was, oh, uh, there is a thread of anxiety that has been attached to a number of, of, of issues that are extremely inflammatory. Uh, and I, I can really feel how agitating that is to you and how much you worry about this stuff. You, you did a great job of walking that line of actually listening empathically and, and sort of reflecting back without being in any way patronizing or psychoanalyzing. It was great. Well, yeah, I mean, because I could just feel it. I mean, I, and I think it's really the, the benefit of the format. And I think that if the more we get out of uh, Facebook threads where it's text block after text block and link dump after link dump, and the more we get out of 
of the the sort of passive consumption of people giving uh, their sermons into YouTube. And the more we get into conversations, I think we're going to make headway uh, in some small way because uh, we can actually, I don't know, open ourselves up to each other's feelings, which are for the most part shared. I mean, I'm anxious about, I'm, I'm anxious in other ways, but I could, I could resonate, I could resonate with a whole feeling sense for sure. Yeah. And he would, the self-awareness was, was, you know, great too. Cause he said, I, as I listen to you, I feel my blood boiling. And it was yeah, like, yeah, yeah right. we could, we could tell. <laughs> he also, one thing that I, because it honestly took me about two minutes into it before I realized what, I don't want to say side, but whether he was, you know, kind of agreeing with us or not. And it wasn't until the chemtrail comment where I was like, okay, now I see what's happening. But in that video that Trump put out this morning, you can go watch it. It's on his Twitter feed. If you can stomach the two minutes of it, he says, seniors are not vulnerable. The next sentence, seniors are the most vulnerable population right back and forth. And you're watching it in real time being like, well, wait a second, what am I listening to? What am I? And that's what I felt like listening to him. And it did take me a while to kind of parse it and piece together the threads he was trying. And that's actually, I think, indicative of of QAnon in general. And what, you know, like when you see people being interviewed at Trump rallies and they're like, Kofeve was a secret message. Well, what did it mean? They were like, well, he'll reveal it when it's time. (laughs) There's there's no actual bearing to what they're saying. Well, but, and there's, so there's, so there's cognitive jamming going on. Uh, There's, um, you know, there's, there's almost, there's a, there's a sense when contradictory ideas are slammed up against each other that, uh, the only resolution is a kind of, I don't know, sort of transrational feeling that you would get that, that, that gives the sense that something intuitive is being said or something beyond, uh, regular discourse is, is being offered, right? This doesn't make sense rationally, but goddamn it, it rhymes. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Somehow. There's also, I want to, I don't want to lose this before we move on to yoga journal, but there was something you said about the vaccine and the nature. And this is a point I make in my book and I've talked about before, but it's so important. If you are a holistic, wellness-minded person, vaccines are one of the most natural ways of healing. I'm sure that for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, people were getting inoculated with small amounts of virus, which would then protect them further. And I know that the conversation tends to be around adjuvants in general and what they're being preserved with. We Julian did a wonderful job many episodes ago breaking down why most of them have no actual effects, negative effects in your body. And the ones that did, they've taken them out at this point. But that is actually a vaccine is one of the most perfect examples of how nature works. You get a little of something that it's how homeopathy works. It's how most medicines that are uh, effective work. So I don't understand this argument from people who are like, I want to get back to nature. And then here is, (laughs) here's what nature does. And you're like, no, not that part. Yeah. I want to get back to nature, but the, the, the medical advance that came from a farmer uh, taking the pus from a cow and rubbing it on the wounds (laughs) of his children is, is, 
you know, unnatural. <laughs> you know, uh, one other thing that I'd like to pick up before we go to Yoga Journal is is the the comment. The, I I I am really obsessed with the anti mask logic. And uh, another angle came up this week when I actually interviewed for a piece that I'm doing on assignment. I was able to interview two soft Q. Well, one's a one's a QAnon group moderator, Facebook moderator, who's just been booted off. So I'm going to have a call with him after we get off to see how he's doing. Uh, but um, the other one is uh, actually a soft Q group leader um, who said when we got into uh, his views on masks, um, I, I proposed that, you know, isn't it just the way that science goes that the public health officials were, uh, you know, going back and forth on, you know, relative benefits versus, you know, whether or not the fomites are going to be spread by people touching their masks. And isn't it, hasn't it just been worked out uh, very slowly? And isn't that the reason why, you know, people believe that, that the scientists are lying? And, and he just waved that all away over Zoom. He literally waved his hand. He said, we don't care about masks we care we care we care about we care about freedom and the symbology of uh self uh, uh sovereignty uh he said so what he's what he basically expressed was that uh, for his faction of of soft q uh ideology um, that the wedge is a is a or the mask is a wedge issue. It's not, and it's not. Yes, they can talk about you know covering the face and you know whether or not two year olds are going to be programmed. David Martin obviously doesn't have a two year old because uh, you know who what what parent or what two year old would be having their mask on all the time? Like what that doesn't even make sense. It's not like the two year old would be wearing their mask twenty four hours of a day and would never understand that they had a face alone in front of the mirror with the mask yeah, what on. The hell? Like, what are you, what, what's all the exaggeration about? It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. Anyway, so, but he was, he was, he basically said, we don't care about the science of masks. We care about symbols of resistance. And I was like, oh, okay, that, that's starting to make a little bit more sense. But then the other thing that I keep, I keep obsessing about is, is this, misunderstanding of what the mask means in terms of one's own health. And and so when the guy says, I'm not anti-mask, I'm pro-freedom, I also hear, not, not, from, not from this guy particularly, uh, but in other ways that that's said, um, you know, which is, you know, I'm not anti-mask, I don't want to feel ashamed of my own body. And, and, you know, I always think, I don't know if you guys saw, uh, the, the COVID protester, uh, COVID denialist protester diaper guy. Uh, he went to a rally in Tulsa, uh, and he, um, he wore this diaper, uh, and it's in the show notes and the diaper says, um, the diaper says something like, uh, check out my COVID fart prevent prevention diaper. Uh, and it's written, he's wearing it in public. And, and his idea, his, 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 uh, argument is that because there was some evidence that suggested that, you know, uh, that, 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 coronavirus was carried in fecal matter or in farts that he he would he would cover himself up uh and that would be his mask and it 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 just brought together these themes of oh for you the mask is an object of shame because it indicates some sort of 
dirtiness. And, and, and I think this is particularly like aggravating to Americans for some reason, uh, because I see the same sort of connection with, uh, I don't know if you remember the parades of guys, uh, who would drive pickups with, um, sort of, they would, they would be souped up so that they would belch out black smoke, uh, and they would wave around drill baby drill signs and it, they would, they would just, they would just make their vehicles as polluting as possible so that they could own the libs. Um, <laughs> you, you know, so there's this, there's this like anal fascination with filth and dirt and whether it's in me or not in me or, and, and there's some idea that American exceptionalism, you know, means that I, I couldn't possibly smell bad or I couldn't possibly be polluting the world just by living, just by existing here. Don't tell me what to do. Not only don't tell me what to do, don't tell me that I'm dirty. Uh-huh. Yeah, but yeah. Like, but Mr. American baby man, I'm sorry, but you are dirty. You are a little bit smelly, um, you know, and instead of stamping your foot like you're three years old and uh-huh. saying, I don't need a wipe, uh, meaning I'm self-sufficient. I don't need to be cared for, which is, of course, an American theme by force now because nobody's caring for Americans. The lack of perspective has always been because there are certain cultures in America in general that we associate with smelling and dirty and what we don't realize is when you go to those countries, they have the same feelings about Americans. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. And a lot of those people use bidets. Yoga Journal last week had a a really quite good article uh, specifically, you know, covering the the Sean Corn and our other friends uh, uh, campaign to sort of push back against QAnon. Uh, They, they specifically mentioned pastel Q and I feel like they, the whoever the woman who wrote it, I'm forgetting her name. Oh, it's uh, Jennifer Davis Flynn. Yeah, Jennifer, yeah, sorry, great Jennifer Davis Flynn. Uh, yeah, it seemed like she had she had done her homework. She may have listened to a few of our episodes. I caught a few things in there. So really, really nice job, and and so great to see it in that specific publication. Um, they they mentioned how you know pastel Q might take the form of covert posts that mentioned uh, COVID denialism, Second Amendment rights, sex trafficking, or 45 as being a light worker. But the, the really noteworthy thing about this was that when I looked through the highest ranked comments, right? So the comments that had gotten the most number of likes, and it was in the hundreds, so, some of them up around, I think, 400, 500, don't tell us how to think. Sex trafficking is real. Now we know who's paying you. This is not yogic. Stick to yoga, please. You're out of your lane. You're censoring free speech and questioning of corporations. Who do you think you are? How can you just accept the mainstream media dismissal of QAnon when they're helping people to think about what's really happening? Right. This is all on Instagram, right? This was on Instagram, and I saw some of this on Facebook as well. So a lot of similar stuff. Now, when I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, th- this is people who follow Yoga Journal already, right? These were, these were not uh, a tro- accounts with trolling names. These were not anonymous accounts. This was, this was Miss Pretty Pants, Rocky Love 100, Literary Chick, Blissful Athlete, and a lot of just like straight up first name, last name, like people who are just sincere social media users who, who use their name, right? Uh, these are yoga journal followers because I, I, they, they teach yoga or they're really into 
yoga. And a lot of the comments were like, I'm unsubscribing. I'm not going to buy your magazine ever again. How dare you be so political? We all started yoga in the 90s. Right. And everything changes. And especially when money is injected, things change. I mean, Yoga Journal is the premier example of that because I had been reading it since the 90s. And even before that, if you go back to issues from the 80s and look at how different it was. But the arguments that used to happen in the 90s were how long a proper shavasana is right. <laughs> and, and whether what poses to start in or not to start in and such. Is power, is power yoga legitimate? Yeah. And these were, the, these were, honestly, for listeners who are newer to yoga, these were the serious questions that were being asked and debated all the time. And we didn't have the same channels. But whenever any, anytime money comes in, it doesn't matter if it's spiritual or if it's corporate, there really is no difference. When money is injected, it's going to skew the product. It's going to make vested interests by certain parties. And I, I'm very happy. I mean, honestly, I, I Yoga Journal has written about me. I've written for them before. I appreciate them. But I was always wary of certain aspects of it. But the, the comments, because I read the threads, not as closely as you, but the comments specifically about the fact that they're corporately owned and the mainstream media aspect. I, I'm sorry, YouTube is not a source of information. And if you're listening to this show on YouTube, you know, you, you can check our notes and our sources too. That's fine. But when you're, when you're immediately viscerally reactive against anything that you don't agree with, there is a problem. And I think if there's any overarching theme that we're trying to help to, to not even solve, but just to ask questions about and think more critically about it's that it's like, what are these things that, that poke you and why are you so immediately reactive? And when I was reading that, I guarantee that a lot of those comments, the people didn't actually read the article. They just saw the the lead and then made their assumption based on that. And that is a problem we have to talk about just these face-to-face conversations. That is a problem we have to solve as well. Right. Um, I reached out to, to Ashley Jennifer Davis Flynn for a comment uh, and by email she replied as follows. I just asked her what it was like to watch those comments flood in. She said, I was shocked when the comments started immediately pouring in. Initially, they were mostly in support of QAnon and Trump and criticized us for talking about politics uh, when we were objectively reporting news that affects the yoga and wellness community. There are two themes I saw in the negative comments of the post. The idea that yoga is, quote, not political, Quote, and how dare we venture beyond poses and pretty pictures to impose our agenda on an audience. I would argue that yoga is inherently political with a spiritual philosophy rooted in oneness, inclusion, equality, and justice. But what the disparaging comments really illustrate for me is the degradation of critical thinking due in part to relentless attack on the media, journalism, and science from the current administration. And whereas I feel like the spiritual community was already susceptible to magical thinking, it's simply gotten worse because we are no longer operating from a shared set of facts. Reading anything in the mainstream media that contradicts your opinions has become fake news, and somehow the existence of a child-eating cabal of satanic Democrats is now believable. In the end, I was happy to see many people come out in support of the Post who were obviously concerned about the crazy stuff they've been hearing and reading from members of their community. I think it helped many people connect the dots back to QAnon. So thank you, Jennifer Davis-Flynn, for uh, writing that in. Uh, Pretty good summation. Um, I was happy personally 
to see um, uh, one name in there. Uh, did you see, see Sadie Nardini uh, in that common thread uh, getting in there and kicking some butt? No, that's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. The original rock star yoga business person. Uh, she was arguing um, powerfully for uh, critical thinking and for Yoga Journal's right to promote it. I met Sadie the day she moved to New York. She uh-huh. was one of my first teachers. She, I have a long history with her. I'm not in touch with her nearly as much, but I will say that uh, she does step up, and she has a certain public persona that you know. Some people love, some people don't, but I've just known her for decades now. And she always, I'm glad to hear that she stepped up like that because that is her person. Well, you know, it also gave me the sense that there's, I feel a typology emerging, at least within me of uh, leaders in this zone um, that, you know, there are charismatic personalities who are, you know, self-aware about the fact that they are business people and that means that they retain a certain amount of bullshit radar and they know what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're making conscious choices uh, about their uh, celebrity status Uh, and it seems that Nardini is kind of in that category and then there's charismatics who just totally get high on their own supply and you know they will be blown about by the wind and if things seem to work in terms of content they'll just you know catch catch a wave. to the SEO. Right. Uh, Crystal Teeny showed up as well in the thread. Did you see that? Do you know guys, you guys know who Crystal Teeny is? Nope. Yeah, the, the LA yoga teacher uh, who owns a yoga mat company called My Soul Mat. Uh, she was um, featured in one of the QAnon Anonymous podcasts, the one where they talked about new age influencers mm. to QAnon Pipeline. Uh, they really, in, in a very sort of um, poignant way, they covered her experience of red pilling, but also how she openly references her struggles with, you know, eating disorders and, and depression. Um, but, you know, stepping back for a moment and in, you know, response to or in reflection of what uh, Jennifer wrote, um, you know, Yoga Journal is actually in a pretty weak position with regard to making moral arguments about anything. Um, you know, it has been, as you pointed out, Derek, uh, it's been through a lot of changes, but, you know, I'd say for the last 15 years, it's really been a consumer lifestyle. you know, catalog body shaming white lady consumption magazine for, you know, uh, a very privileged population. It's, it's made money by running advertising for abusive yoga organizations. Um, you know, and, and it's lost something of its pedigree. Um, it reminded me reading this, uh, about, you know, why there's actually, uh, two main yoga media organizations going now. Do you guys know how Yoga International came to be and why? No. So uh, in 1990, Catherine Webster was hired by Yoga Journal back when it was actually, you know, a magazine that funded investigations and, you know, had fact checkers and stuff like that uh, to write the article about Swami Rama, which is called the, I think it's called the, the case against Swami Rama. And Webster uncovered, you know, decades of abuse uh, within the organization. Uh, and as soon as the Himalayan Institute realized that this meant that they couldn't advertise in Yoga Journal anymore, they created their own magazine called Yoga International. And so if you are... If you're signed up to both of those, now you, you, you know why there's, there's kind of like the, 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 
the two party system in yoga, big media. Uh, but in, in, I mean, I just say in general, with regard to yoga journal, expectations should be very low. And, you know, the basic cultural value is its power to make conspicuous consumption of wellness products and retreats feel like it has spiritual benefit. And, you know, every, time over the last several years that that yoga journal has made any gesture towards critical thinking or social justice uh it's broken all of the rules of its own marketing uh and you know of course it's going to feel to a bunch of its readership like it's you know just blown a big fart in the aromatherapy room The year is 1995. Smartphones aren't a thing, and cell phones are rare. I won't get into what you needed to connect to actually play music, but I was a proud member of BMG Music Club. Well, sort of. There were ways as a college student to get your first 11 CDs for a penny without being obligated to make further purchases. I'm not saying that was me, so I'm speaking for a friend. The 11 choices were never what you really wanted, so you took chances. One of mine was an album called Night Song, a collaboration between a Pakistani Kuali singer named Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan and Canadian guitarist and producer Michael Brook. Let's just say I have no idea what the other 10 albums were, but Night Song changed my life. I'm going to save my detailed thoughts on global music for a Monday bonus episode. Suffice to say, my journey into world music, or music from places other than America, began the day I slid that album into my CD player. I ended up spending a decade of my life as an international music journalist talking to hundreds of musicians from around the world, attending hundreds of concerts, listening to thousands of albums, and being absorbed by the sounds and cultures of the planet. Music is how a kid that grew up in a racist white suburban community was transformed into someone who has spent decades advocating not only for tolerance, but active participation and communication with other cultures. My college years were spent studying music and religion, And really, there's not a lot of difference between the two. If you want to know one, you study the other. To understand the soul of a people, listen to their music. When I was communicating with Ben Lee for today's episode, I saw in an old email that we had actually talked in 2015. I mentioned that at the beginning of our conversation. Ben is an Australian singer and songwriter who cut his teeth playing in a youthful punk band, Noise Addict. The Sydney-based band was signed to Grand Royal Records, the Beastie Boys label, that also released the awesome Luscious Jackson. (laughs) 
Ben has since created, produced, and scored dozens of projects. Most recently, that includes a collaborative record with Josh Radner, a musical with Tom Robbins, and seven years ago, an album dedicated to Ayahuasca. His 2019 album is called Quarter Century Classics. Can you treat it like an oil well? to be on the podcast due to his relentless political work on social media. He somehow found conspirituality and we started a conversation online, one I feel that will last for some time. And that comes up during our talk, how you need to communicate with members of your tribe right now, because despite what us more liberal-minded people like to believe, we're living through tribal warfare. It might be on a new battlefield, but out in the real world, Americans are dying by the hundreds of thousands, and cults like QAnon are actively indoctrinating people to think that that's okay. It's part of a great awakening. When I come across someone willing to speak up against such atrocities, I want to talk to them because they're allies, just like many people I've DM'd with since the inception of conspirituality are. I start our conversation discussing the state of music. Being a musician has never been easy. What we're living through right now with Patreon and Kickstarter and tip jars is really just an incarnation of another old artistic model, sponsorship. Buying albums is a relatively new phenomenon, not even 100 years old, at least not on a mainstream level. The first subscription music service was through the telephone at the turn of the 20th century, and (laughs) that didn't go so well. Other calls would seep in over the orchestra you were listening to. Before that, you had to rely on your community to survive as an artist. And so here we are again. Thinkers like Stephen Mithen believe that music was the precursor to language. The vocalizations we use to assign meaning in the form of words originated with sounds we made with our bodies, and these sounds had rhythm and melody. That's likely why music is so deeply embedded in our consciousness, and why this pandemic has sucked so much. Not being able to go to concerts hurts, but there are other ways to support your artists. So please remember that when the musicians you love are in need. Okay, I can talk about this topic all day, and I will soon share a deeper dive on the importance of music and global cultures. But for now, here's my talk with Ben Lee. Going through my email, we did chat in 2015, but it wasn't for your music. It was for Silver Lake Chorus. Oh, cool. I didn't realize that. Awesome. So I interviewed you and I went back. I used to work for Six Degrees Records doing all of their press releases and bios. And so I found our clips uh, when we talked in 2015. So it's a nice to have a five-year catch-up now. (laughs) Yeah, that was a great great project. That was really fun. I've I've been friends with uh, Bob Duskus for 20 years now, and I've followed everything they've ever produced. And that was one of the more unique projects and really came to light because of you. So that was a that was really good. I don't know if they're still together. That's the only thing I remember by them. They are. And they try and the, the thing is like, you know, when you have people doing something part time and there's 25 of them, it's just the scheduling, like doing gigs together and making an album. That, that album took us three years or something because 
of the logistics of making, and then you bring in all these like rock stars and songwriters and it just, it, it was kind of nuts, but I do have that side of me that looks for the most interesting and difficult challenge in the room and then goes, let's see if we can figure it out. And it's almost like the more behemoth, the sort of imaginative skill required in conceptualizing it, the more excited I get. <laughs> so that's I yeah. like those challenges. <laughs> Before we get into the more conspirituality stuff, because I think this is an, also an important topic. And since we have you here, I know you recently recorded a video for sort of a little fundraiser for the bootleg theater and with so many venues closing right now, as an artist who has spent your entire life performing, how do you feel about this moment musically, both in terms of what is coming out creatively, perhaps, or what you've been working on, but also about some speculation about the future of live music and what you think we can do with, with the circumstances? Mm. Well, the, you know... The marginalization of musicians in terms of the value that we feel they deserve for their content in our society has been, that's been a, a steady decline for a number of years now in the sense that like, I just don't think the average person believes or values uh, music as a commodity in the way they might have in the seventies or eighties. So like a lot of young people, music is something that's consumed through TikTok or through video games, but it's basically like a peripheral consumption of music, you know, as opposed to like the old audiophile thing where you'd get the new album and put it on headphones and listen to it over and over and memorize the lyrics. And so from that perspective, what, what we've continued to see through COVID, um, the, lack of concern essentially by our wider society for what's happening to artists um, doesn't seem that surprising. So we're headed back to Australia in December for at least for 2021. And partly that's because I'm going to be able to work there. And I don't think, I know so many musicians who um, they just haven't been, been able to work and I don't know what's going to happen to like creatively. Do you then get, I think you sort of get this um, sort of spread where you get either people that are already relatively privileged and can continue to make their work without worrying about live performance and royalties and that sort of thing. Or you get the Dostoevsky's of the world who like the chaos of it, it spurs them into more creativity and they sit in the madness with no money and unable to pay their rent and they create their like genius statements on, you know, on humanity. So I think those two types of artists are sort of the ones who are continuing to be very dynamic and prolific, but for the majority of artists who are like working artists, it's a very hard time to be able to continue. How have you found that it's affected your own creativity? It's quite funny, like in the beginning of uh, quarantine and everything, when everyone was like, this is the chance to like make your masterpiece and write your novel and all of that. Uh, I thought that's actually good advice for people that have already built those skills, but you're not suddenly going to get the ability to conceptualize and manifest work in such chaos without having built those muscles. Um, and I'm someone who I go from project to project. So for me, rolling this atmosphere into that felt easier, but I have other friends who have been completely creatively paralyzed. I, I think at the moment, honestly, at the moment, all I can think about is um, 
the election and I'm putting all of my creativity into uh, encouraging people that voted third party or didn't vote in the last election to vote and vote blue. And that's, that's where I'm putting my creativity. I'm halfway through making an album, but I've put it all on hold for the moment because I just can't justify putting energy into anything other than, um, than this very important cause right now. Yeah, I was reading an article this morning about the idea that influencers can no longer remain politically neutral. And realistically, I mean, that's, that's a debate we can have, but a longstanding argument I've heard is that entertainers should not be political. And you'll see sometimes someone will come out and then people will be like, just, just play your music or just act, don't talk. And this whole idea, which I've always found completely nuts because everyone is a citizen and has a voice, but you have definitely been very vocal. And has that something you've, have you always felt it important to speak out politically or have you felt that it's ramped up over 2020? Yeah, I mean, I've always felt it important to speak up about what I was passionate about. Um, that historically hasn't been politics, with the exception of there's been movements that I felt very connected with or inspired by, but they were sort of these periodic things that I would get, you know, feel like I wanted to speak up and share my voice in. But I don't know, at the moment, it's funny, like being an immigrant to America, you know, I moved here when I was 18, so that's 24 years ago. Sometimes you find immigrants are uh, more patriotic than people that were born in a certain country because we had to choose to come. And in some ways, perhaps naively, I, I kind of still like believe in America in like a fundamental sense of what it could be. I mean, I remember at 12 years old being coming with my parents and I was a huge Spike Lee fan. And all I wanted to do in LA was go to the 40 acres and a mule store and buy Spike Lee merchandise. Because to me, coming from Australia, I viewed the uh, um, America as a container that could um, tolerate intense dialogue about race and art and revolution to be um, have the potential for just like healing and radical change and, you know, just this amazing momentum. And I, I've got to say that optimism has... <laughs> It's been worn worn down in me over the years because I kind of thought there were more people like me than the other way that actually wanted things to maintain the status quo or go backwards. For me, there was obviously all of Trump's presidency had been incredibly disheartened, but there was a moment um, and it was connected to Black Lives Matter. I found that the emergence of that movement to be so emotional and inspiring for me and I know the conversations that I was having with black friends and with white friends within my family, we were having new conversations. There was actually something happening that the complete lack of support for that dialogue from the current administration I found to be criminal, let alone sending the military in to quell protesters and, you know, to quell protests and to share the message that essentially dissent is unpatriotic. I mean, I found it all so disturbing. And then moving into the QAnon thing where not only was there a, uh, a disregard for Black Lives Matter, but actively there was, you know, this, this counter-argument that it was a, a, whatever they call it, a PSYOP, or that it was somehow a distraction from the real issues, I found so personally insulting and I think that was the moment when I 
it sort of became like um, inconceivable for me to stand on the sidelines of this conversation. Um, I felt drawn into it in such an emotional way and with such veracity and like belief in my, my understanding of the authenticity of this conversation that we need to be having. It was like, it was just undeniable to me. And so all of this kind of got me more and more pumped up. And I was just like, I am going to do my part to get this guy out of office. Yeah, I've noticed some pushback on your feed, but not a lot. It's mostly overwhelming support, which is great. But obviously there's trolls, there's operatives, and there's just people who don't agree, which is fine. There, There is room I found online for some critique and debate that remains civil, but obviously most of the time it's not. And when you read about people pushing back on you, how do you feel and how do you respond to that? I've, I've always had a kind of mixed reaction to criticism. Um, there's a part of me that, like everybody, I want to be heard, I want to be understood, I want to connect. But there's also like a punk rocker in me that is, you know, I come from underground music. I come from the idea that um, pushing buttons is good and that art and that speaking the truth and poetry and, you know, ideas are not meant to be uh, you're not meant to receive total uh, just, you know, unfettered support from who you're, who you're talking to, that some pushback is healthy, but that doesn't mean that I need to engage with it. it um, you're in a different world in that you're, you know, with this podcast and everything, you, you, this project is really about creating conversation. I'm an individual and my platform is not a democracy and I'm not interested in giving space. I'll, I'll often give there'll be one attempt at engagement if I think the person's sincere. Uh, but if they use a hashtag like Trump 2020 or something, it's done right away. Because as soon as you use a hashtag, you're basically drawing other people with like minds on social media, drawing their attention to the post. And that I feel is, um, is an aggressive act. And I, I block and delete all of those types of people. How would I've noticed that, the second amount of listeners to the podcast are actually from Australia. Oh, really? And I also have, yeah, I also have a music project called Earthrise Sound System. And I've, we've been around for 10 years. We do it occasionally. But um, interestingly, the second number of listeners we have is from Australia. And we're, our first record was called The Yoga Session. So it's beat driven, but it's made for that community. And so I've always had some relationship. And to the wellness community, obviously, there's something in Australia. I know you lived in the US for a long time. But you do go back. And I'm wondering, what are the parallels that you found between the, the, we use the term wellness community, obviously that's a big term, but between what you experience in the States and what you see in Australia? Yeah, I mean, Australia is, um, it definitely has a large uh, group of people that, you know, would we have like, you know, you, I don't know if you played like the Byron Bay Blues and Roots Festival, and there's a lot of hippies and, you know, on the, um, on the central coast on the East coast. And, um, there's a, yeah, there's a big, big yoga, kirtan, that sort of world that I've always been sort of like peripherally involved in through different, for different reasons. Um, but I think one of the things I'm, that's interesting about Australia is our experience of racism is very different because, you know, Aboriginal people in Australia are more like the native Americans in, uh, in America, in that it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. The genocide already happened. We do, while we still make gestures of reconciliation, 
they really are gestures at this point. It's not the same as dealing with uh, the relationships between black and white Americans who this is an, an active, dynamic, massive population within America. So in some ways, the racism within Australia, or even if it's like more covert and it's just obliviousness to the reality of racism is like, it's, it's very conceptual. It's very conceptual. You know, I had never really, I mean, one of the things I really credit your podcast with is um, helping me and a lot of people I know think about the inherent privilege that's based in sort of new age communities and how a lot of the people who kind of drop out of, you know, going to law school on their parents' dime and everything and then get into like macrobiotic foods and move and open a yoga center and all that, that is an incredibly privileged position to be in. And I think the new age world in Australia is is quite privileged and is protected in that way from some of the, the realities of what, um, uh, just what needs to be discussed, you know, at a real, at a social level. Part of the reason I know I have the analytics tracking, but I also, a lot of people from Australia reach out to us. Uh, the number one is always Pete Evans that they're pointing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are a number of yoga instructors who are kind of towing this line. And even though we do have... Uh, what you said, that conflict, or that it's, it's more in your face in America, I would imagine, than Australia in terms of racial dynamics. It's still easy to fall into pockets, even here in Los Angeles. Uh, in New York City, on the subway, I would hear 10 languages every time I got on. In Los Angeles, you have to drive to different areas to experience different cultures, so it's a little bit different. And have you noticed with the QAnon, I don't know how much in touch you are. You said you had some family in Australia, so maybe some. Have you seen a proliferation of QAnon to the degree that you've seen it here uh, in Australia? Yeah, I actually have, and it's concerned me. Um, So for your, you know, I guess part of this conversation in terms of my involvement in sort of fighting QAnon and their disinformation that, you know, your listeners for the most part, and even a lot of my fans don't know about me, is my kind of journey as a, you know, quote unquote, spiritual seeker over the years has taken me through a lot of um, different worlds. You know, I was born Jewish, um, but I, I always had this kind of just, you know, thirst for knowledge that I'm sure we all did. And was like, I was like, I want to, I want to find out the truth. I want to experience different viewpoints. I want to tap into the occult wisdom of the ages and, you know, all these kind of things. Um, I can now look back on those experiences go, Oh, that's called moving through different cults. Um, in fact, I've sort of come to the belief that there is no way for spiritual knowledge Uh, and again in quotes, to be taught or shared in a group without it being a cult. Um, My my feeling is that all of that real inner knowing um, is an incredibly personal experience. And as soon as there's any type of group dynamic, it's naturally going to be like a cult dynamic. It's just in its nature. I've As I've moved through these different explorations, and that's the thing, like when I tell people, oh yeah, I've been in cults, they imagine I like moved onto some sort of homestead and, you know, I don't know, had, you know, nine wives and whatever I was doing. But, but for me, it was more like, I think these, I've sort of, I was in a Qigong, I studied Qigong at a place called the American Taoist Healing Center in New York that for a number of years that I view as having, you know, kind of cult-like qualities. I, we, my wife and I actually got married by a Hindu guru 
called Narayani Ama, who's like a male manifestation of the divine mother energy that was very, that was a cult. Studied this thing called the Numa system with this teacher called Juan Ruiz Nalpari that was a mixture between like Gnostic Christianity and ayahuasca work and Peruvian, you know, uh, all this kind of occult sort of weirdness, you know. Um, And then even through that, I got involved with doTERRA and essential oils. And so I've had an experience of that whole thing. And what's interesting about that is the debate, the ongoing debate of are MLMs cult-like? I feel like the QAnon thing is it's the nail in the coffin. All we have to look at is how many people from that world have bought into QAnon and it highlights that the um, the perception of that world being cult-like was like completely accurate and that there's a those people involved in that are prone to that type of thinking, you know, take out even the economic side of it and that, you know. So, so anyway, all of that's background knowledge on why I have quite a broad connection to people in these different worlds and, and with each of them, I came to different moments of realizing I was in a cult with cult-like behavior, it's almost like the QAnon thing has allowed me to see it clearly because I'm so diametrically opposed to its values and I'm watching people drop like flies around me in Australia and in America. And I'm going like, oh, this is what it feels like when you choose not to get on the bus and just go in the direction that it's going. But it's given me sort of amongst my community kind of a unique skill set in being able to, I'm also good mates with, um, you know, Bonnie and Mark who are in that show, The Vow, who were in Nexium. Um, so like, you know, so, so I, I, I've, I've been involved in these conversations, you know, over the last decade. And it's like, now what I'm seeing is like, it's this mix. It's probably much like what you're feeling. It's both the inevitability of this experience that the seed was planted for this type of thinking and for these type of people to get involved in fascism long ago and we were all directly involved in it like we all helped cultivate this atmosphere i love that piece that julian did that little piece on instagram about the complex implications of being told to trust your intuition and your heart um, over logic and that's a lesson that i was directly involved in um, disseminating and sharing and telling people as i was like gaslighting them so i could continue to gaslight myself and stay involved in all these various different programs. I feel a sense of like personal responsibility in terms of the contribution. It's almost like I think when like Limp Biscuit came out after the Beastie Boys, and you go, the Beastie Boys had to honestly look at themselves and go, "Look, we didn't want it to end up here, but we can't deny that our behavior helped lay the track for this." Yeah, I, I actually that just brings up a memory. I, I was in the college organization at Rutgers when I was there. And we had a biohazard and house of pain headline. And there was this little band that hadn't had an album yet called corn that opened. And I ended up, I don't know if you know corn, but basically of the limp biscuit variety, but that's just, yeah, that, that was a, that was an interesting moment in time. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, this is what happens. Like ideas come that have some sort of like, they could go either way, depending how they used like an idea, like trust your intuition above science or logic, that idea could sort of be used for good at times if the logic you were being faced with was, for instance, like the logic of the the tribe in organized religion when they're telling you, oh, no, don't 
don't read that book. Don't do, you know, and you're like, my intuition's, it's like Kermit the Frog, like the rainbow connection. Like my intuition's telling me to leave the tribe and to experience what's out there. But it can also be used as we're seeing now to become a total distrust of logic. We are living in the result of too many people (laughs) um, turning away from logic. Yeah. Well, logic, I mean, people have to remember that logic is a skill that you have to study for. Intuition uh, is is a, is an evolutionary skill that we developed over time, and it's just it's environmental. You learn certain patterns, and then you you know you notice the glitches in the patterns, and that's really what intuition is. It's just your own personal training, and then applied to different moments. So you're basing every new experience off of what you've experienced before, and if something seems a little bit off, then you get that feeling of like, wait a second, this feels weird to me. And this whole thing is disorienting. You brought up Nexium, which is a fast, fantastic documentary. Uh, you know, watching the first one with my wife, we were both like, you know what? Just watching the first episode, if we were around this sort of group 10 years ago, we might have been like, yeah, well, I'll check this out. This seems, you know, there was nothing religious around it at first. It was a little corporate for me. It was a little corporate for me. Like, I like the sexiness of like the psychedelic <laughs> exoticism. When I pick a cult, you know, <laughs> but I, mean? I have I have a lot of friends who are who are lawyers, and they a number of them got yeah. into like landmark forum, for example, which is very right. that corp that same. You know, they they suit different uh, temperaments, I guess you could say. I'm with you on the psychedelic side, but the the idea of promoting um, clarity and focus and ways to excel in your career. Those are all things that people, productivity, that's all things that people are looking for now. But then you watch how it slides down that rabbit hole of that show. And But at least with Nexium, there was a very clear leader. And you might not yet, even it's not all out yet, so you don't yet know the totality of the intentions. I mean, you might because you're friends with them. But uh, with QAnon, there is no leader. There's something completely different happening now. And I just would like to get your thoughts on what you think the real dangers of QAnon are. The dangers of cult-like thinking are that they encourage you to make allowances for things that you wouldn't when you're in your right grounded mind, right? So the, the, the example I keep coming back to is like once the QAnon, the spiritual QAnon people went down this Trump is a light worker thing, right? Because they do this with gurus. There was always like with Osho, there was the crazy wisdom, right? And I, I experienced this like because I've, you know, I've been around gurus and there is an incredible devaluation of one's personal experience that, oh, the guru said this to me. It didn't make sense, but obviously they were trying to tweak me and twist me and, and reveal things to me. What do you think it meant? And ultimately, there is a placing of the guru's agenda or behavior as far above one's own perception of what's right and wrong. And when we're living at a time when, for instance, like, um, climate change and um, race relations. And, I mean, they're, they're two that jump to mind, but there are so many issues that need to be dealt with, with clarity, with tenderness, with compassion, with logic, with science. The, the real, the biggest danger is that we're going to run out of time. Yeah. That we're going to be so sidetracked by trusting whatever Trump the light worker is doing um, or, or whatever Q is saying that we don't do what we're meant to be doing, which is 
getting our asses in gear and fixing these problems because this is not an infinite runway we've got to deal with this stuff. And I'm just seeing this massive distraction. So I know other people are like focused on um, violence um, and the, the potential threats of violence from QAnon and, and that, and I'm, I'm there with that too. But the bigger issue for me is this distraction. And so, yeah, we were talking about in Australia, how is QAnon manifesting? And um, I have a friend down there who's a, an essential oils person, um, Jessie Reimers, and she's quite like famous in that world. And she reached out to me after seeing my posts and she was like, these people are driving me crazy. Like there's people all through doTERRA who have lost it. And they're like, they're all aboard this, like Trump is a light worker thing. And I said, well, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I invite you if you feel authentically about this to make a statement, because I do think as many of us, um, there is power in numbers. And the, the more of us who simply say, not feeling it, it's literally like 1941, just like waving a hand going, um, not for me. You know, literally the more of us that do that, because I actually think people that have already gone QAnon, you're not getting them back. They've made their mind up. But there are people with one toe in and every day going in further. I feel like you guys, me, Sean Corn, all those, we can catch some of those guys. <laughs> we can catch some of them and just be like, look, there's an alternative. You don't, that's not the only slope you can go down here. You know, I know Mickey Willis. Um, I, uh, I've met Charles Eisenstein. I've done an event with JP Sears. Like all of these people are in my broader community and it's been, they are people who have, I, I am not someone who thinks a platform is a small thing. Look, if you're an Instagram influencer that just takes photos in bikinis, then maybe there is a limit to how seriously your ideas will be taken. But if you are someone that has built a platform based on your voice having resonance, um, I think the negligence associated with not tackling climate change, tackling racism, getting Trump out of office... I am absolutely shocked. And obviously these people we're mentioning have gone the other direction and not only are they not dealing with it, they're actually promoting ideas that are counterproductive to us finding solutions. Um, but I've just found it, um, it's, it's bewildering. It's absolutely bewildering. Sorry, I tend to get hopped up. I mean, I know everyone does talking about this. It's like, no, it's yeah. great. I, I, we were, we actually were on this online summit last night, the three of us, and there was like 20 some people on the call and, you know, we started and then there was Q and A and it just turned into a free fall in a good way because people are emotional right now and you need that. But one thing that I love working with Matthew and Julian, they are infinitely more patient and compassionate than I am. <laughs> I have a very short fuse at sometimes, especially with my bullshit detector. Right. And it's a skill that I have to work on because sometimes I'm too upfront, but I wonder how you deal with this situation. So say you are engaging. And I think with the ones Owen people, it is because there's still room for conversation and dialogue. And I've actually had a number of people reach out and request phone calls to talk these things through, which I've taken all of them because that's healthy because then you can actually look at someone and or talk to them and have a real dialogue, which is something that's obviously missing. So how do you approach those situations? You mentioned a few people I worked on with Mickey on something years ago. So these people are around and I, and I get it, but Mickey specifically has 
closed off communications with people that don't agree with him. I mean, he's admitted that online. So I'm not like revealing anything here. And how, how, so those, those people who are kind of hovering, how would you approach them and how do you talk to them? Well, I, I think there's, look, I've had people reach out to me and say, um, thank you. I was thinking I was cr- the crazy one and the validation we received through speaking up and reflecting back at people, Hey, you're not crazy. This is crazy. <laughs> What's happening? That's huge. Um, I just look for little opportunities. I mean, I bumped into the other day, um, someone who you were on his podcast, Jeff, who does commune. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, uh, until he had you guys on, I was, cause I knew, I knew they'd had Charles Eisenstein on and I was like a little concerned, like which direction is this going to go? And I saw him and I thanked him for having you guys on. I said, thank you for that. I said, don't have Mickey Willis on your podcast. And I just said it to him and he, he, he looked like flustered because he's obviously getting a lot of heat after having you guys on there. And, um, and I said, and he said, it's really been stressful. I want to get out of being involved in this whole conversation. I was like, that's fine, but no queuing on people on our platforms. We cannot do it. It is crucial that we call each other out on that. And the, a lot of, you know, there are these people like Mickey Willis who are relentless in their quest for being a leader and having their voice heard and being, you know, having a lot of resonance at the time. But then there's a lot of people that just like have different platforms and go like, oh, let's be open-minded. Let's hear what this person, and they're not used to. I mean, this is the thing. It's like the, you know, someone said said that the other day, uh, you can be so open-minded, your brains fall out. Um, But, but, you know, we, we sort of pride ourselves um, within this quote-unquote conscious community of being open-minded. And it's really, I think, difficult for people to accept the idea that perhaps this isn't the time to be open-minded. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that is a very challenging concept. I was like, because that was a 90s idea. Like, that was like Nirvana, like Lollapalooza hey, let's just put every freak, let's give them a microphone, let's put them on a stage. I don't care how weird their ideas are. It's going to be great to have dialogue and everyone gets heard and people are smart enough to decide for themselves. Well, firstly, I'm not sure. I think it's proven that I'm not sure we are smart enough to decide for ourselves. (laughs) Given all the information, I think we often gravitate to mistaken info. Um, But also, it's, um, it's very difficult for liberal people to have boundaries in that way. And I think... I've kind of co-opted the, you know, Ringo Starr, Howard Stern, peace and love, peace and love, but with boundaries, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm sorry, this is not a moment where I am going to play any part in giving these types of arguments more airtime or more platform. And I'm encouraging everyone I come in contact with to do the same. You mentioned earlier, I mean, we've been talking here and there and going in and out of uh, spirituality. And I, I grew up without a religion. I have a degree in religion because I'm fascinated by it. But I've been an atheist for a long time. I'm more interested in storytelling. And that's moved me through as a journalist and as just someone who's around a lot of different circles. And spe- specifically speaking of Judaism, my ex-wife is Jewish. Uh, my music partner is, my, my DJ partner, one of them was... Uh, I've been around that culture a lot. And one thing I've always appreciated about it is how open-minded everyone I know at least is and the exploration of all these various spiritualities and how they fit into the pre-existing culture is so valuable. And so when you have something like QAnon, which has its roots in anti-Semitism, how does that make you feel personally? 
it's it's complicated um, because okay, take Israel as an example, which is a conversation that I think societally we're almost not quite ready to have yet. Yeah, but yeah, a, there is a conversation to be had about the ties between Western capitalist governments and Israel. I, I don't think there's a, these are necessarily clearly black and white things, but there are conversations and we're not having them. And I think in a lot of ways that has created a breeding ground for anti-Semitism in a new way because uh, Jewish people have not necessarily been held accountable coming out of the Holocaust for some of the policies of Israel and whatever that we should be able to talk about and just go, hey, I'm Jewish. I love the Jewish people. I want them to survive and thrive. Let's talk about what that really looks like in the most just way possible as a liberal, as a progressive. How do we do that? And we haven't been having those conversations. So I think in a lot of ways, that's echoing what I was saying before, that that's the part where our side of the street has created the sort of fermentation of this type of anti-Semitism. All that being said, these arguments are so old. And the idea that there's Shylock pulling strings and, you know, I mean, it's like, but, but the people who are falling for QAnon, they don't realize the anti-Semitic or the racist nature, the white supremacist roots of it. It's not, especially now, I was just listening to your last episode about the, um, because I was also following that last week, the um, dampening down of the message and the keywords and all of that. And we're going to see QAnon theories in a way becoming more mainstreamed and having the edge taken off them, much like we have yoga, the yoga community. It's like it, it, it has infiltrated um, the mainstream in ways that edgy ideas do. They kind of like, they have the edges taken off them and they kind of, and it's, it might become a little harder to spot the hidden agendas of white supremacy and anti-Semitism. But we need to continue to um, remember that being open to critique and being open to refinement. And and that's another thing I, I love about what you guys are doing, that it does not imply that everything is okay in the world of big pharma or in the world of capitalism. It's like, These are problematic areas. And if we become just like staunch defenders of the system, we're not doing anyone any favors. Yeah. So, so I have complicated feelings about, about all of it. Yeah, no, first off, I agree with you. I've learned long ago coming from religion, from an academic and just a storytelling perspective, Theodore Herzl originally picked Uganda for the place the Jews to go and then chose Israel or what happened after his death, actually. But point being like when, when you hear the sacred land argument, you're like, well, you have to, you know, but when you bring, when you invoke that, you're immediately pushed into this category of anti-Semitism instead of actually having that discussion. And there's so many discussions that are difficult to have. So here's one I would like to entertain with how you act in your community and your friends with this. In the discussion last night in that summit, I brought up the fact that in 2017, I thought that there would just be a groundswell of people voting in Los Angeles. And it turns out that the election that put Garcetti in office, only 13% of Angelinos voted in that election. And that was a year after Trump. And I was just banging my head. I'm like, what's it going to take to get people to have civic participation 
Because voting is, that's just the very first entry point into being a civilian. And I think part of the problem has been that we, talking of privilege, we've enjoyed the fruits of democracy without having to engage for so long. Now that we're being asked to, I think that that has opened up avenues for conspiracy theories to creep in. So when you talk to, say you have some friends who aren't voters or think the whole system is rigged, so why even partake in it? How do you respond to them? Yeah, I have. I do have some friends who are uh, disenfranchised and friends of friends I hear about. Um, I, I don't get as concerned about the ones in California because it is a blue state. But when you hear about, you know, young uh, black creative people in Pennsylvania or in Florida feeling that what's the point that that does concern me. But but I also take a this is where my innate optimism comes in that I have always liked that. Um, Buddha idea, you know, it doesn't matter. I forget what it was. It's like, it doesn't matter how long you've been off the path. It's, it's when you get started or whatever. And I, I do think that like engagement, cause I, for myself, political awareness has been a slow growth process. And I think that's okay. Um, I have a stepdaughter who's 19 who, you know, me and my wife have been very pro Biden with a pragmatism of, this is about getting Trump out of office, guys. Like, I, I could not care less what your ideals are at this moment because we have a very real threat that needs to be neutralized. And, but I see how 19-year-olds think differently. And I try, in the same way artistically, I think when you're 19, you should be destroying structures. And when you're 42, like I am, you should be going, how do we work within the structures? And probably when you're in your 70s and 80s, you're like, how do we protect the structures? <laughs> um, so I try not to be judgmental of that because I understand it. I have empathy for it. But I try and kind of lead by example in that I don't think there's anything corporate or weak or sellout about throwing your weight behind Biden right now. I think Joe Biden's brave. I think taking on this current moment in American politics requires immense courage. And the characterization of him as somewhat like feeble or, or like lacking chutzpah or something, I was like, dude, it's not possible. He could not be running this campaign right now if he wasn't full of moxie you know? And so I just kind of try and lead by example. I, I go like, let's make it cool. Let's go, hey, you know, it's kind of like who's going to stand up to the school bully. Um, I don't care who they are and I don't care what they did yesterday. If they're going to go up and stand up to the school bully, I'm with them. Yeah. And that's kind of just my attitude I take with it. Yeah, that's a good attitude. You mentioned climate change earlier and I've been a columnist at Big Think for eight years now. And one thing that I know because again, seeing all the analytics of the columns is I've talked about that column ever since I started writing there about that topic and it doesn't perform well analytically. People just don't click on that. I can pretty much tell what stories are going to take off and which ones aren't uh, at this point. And so we still cover the topic because it needs to be covered, but the, the engagement factor isn't there when really that is going to decide everything as we're learning in California right now. So how, uh, what do you think it's going to take to get people to really care about 
that issue and inspire them to take action so that we don't have to wait until 5 million acres are burned down in this state in order to understand that there's actually a problem happening right now. Well, the the conversation about language as a songwriter, it's really interesting because we're essentially talking about marketing and hooks in songs. Yeah. Like why do certain song titles make you feel good about yourself? Yeah. Why, why are certain types of lyrical turns, are they hooky? Why are they memorable? And I was involved in an interesting conversation with a bunch of sort of different lefty activists uh, recently about why isn't the word fascism doing it? Like literally, when you look at what fascism is and who, who's it doing it for, it is motivating people um, 40 and up. Yeah. It is not motivating people under 40. And there's a conversation about language and certain words, like certain words that have become so crude and so violent in our society, like the N-word, that word has an emotional charge to it. If someone uses it, we feel in our bodies the violence and the danger that's present. Whereas if we say fascism, that isn't there yet for some reason. And similarly with climate change, climate change does not, for some reason, has not captured the imagination of the masses to the degree that it needs to, to create the change that we're going to need to see. So what I really think that is about is more creative people, um, more out-of-the-box thinkers, coming, uh, putting their heads together and buckling down and doing you know, doing what we're doing now, which is discussing messaging and discussing how do we stop our world going off the deep end, whether it's on a local level or on a global level. We need more people involved in the conversation and more interesting ideas about how to talk about these things. Well, you mentioned you're an optimist, so let's let's end on what could be an optimistic outlook. We'll see. I don't know. I haven't asked it yet. But one thing that I've heard is that, okay, say Trump is voted out, hopefully, and he does actually leave. And we do have an administration, a new one, and we start to course correct. But of course, that 40% base isn't leaving. There are a number of QAnon candidates who are going to be in Congress, who are going to be taking these ideas forward. We are potentially dealing with a very frightening Supreme Court, which could have real world implications for tens of millions of people, if not the entire country, obviously. So let's take best case scenario where he is voted, he is voted out. What does America look like in 2021? And how, how do we start to steer this ship in another direction? I mean, obviously, I don't know. <laughs> and um, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm scared too. Um, I think what I like to focus on is that what America needs more of is discernment. Um, we grab for these headlines and these glamorous conspiracy theories or glam, you know, catchphrases, make America great again, because we don't have the courage or haven't had the courage to get into the weeds and be discerning with policy, with which representatives we're electing, with what ideas we're going to allow into the consciousness that we're sharing. And One of the things that I've been interested in with this QAnon, um, the mystics who are getting involved in QAnon, right? So the the channelers and all of that. What I realized about my attraction to cult leaders is that I was seduced by power. That if I met a Qigong master who could do magical shit, you know, like um, put put an acupuncture needle in someone, then their arm would shake. Or whatever. I mean, all this stuff seems to happen. It seems to be just part of nature that we don't really understand. 
I would get seduced and go, this person has all the answers. If I met a guru who could sit perfectly for 12 hours and seem to know psychic things, whether it's like, you know, uh, whether that's manipulation or whether that's genuine, some kind of like intuitive power, I was seduced by that power. When I was in an ayahuasca ceremony and I would experience entities coming to me and telling me things because they were non-physical, they existed within this imagination realm, I was seduced by their power and I gave their messages credit. And what I learned from um, reading about the Dalai Lama was, you know, the Dalai Lama does lots of weird um, channeling uh, mediumship ceremonies where different Buddhas will enter different monks' bodies and the Dalai Lama will go to them for advice about different things. But he also disagrees with some of the spirits and he doesn't follow all their advice because ultimately he believes in the autonomy of his own experience and, you know, takes it all in but doesn't accept it blindly. And I realize personally I have certainly erred in the being seduced by power and I think America on the whole and Australia too, but we've all been seduced by power. So you get these larger-than-life people and larger-than-life ideas that are sweeping us off our feet. And I think QAnon is that. I think QAnon is whoever Q or whatever Q is, is an entity. It's a conceptual idea that, you know, um, I'm sure someone's just sitting typing up these things or whatever. I'm not, but I don't like to discount the power of ideas and the seductive quality of them. Like I, I love the, um, I also love that QAnon anonymous podcast. And I think they're so, they're so funny because they tease and there is immense value in that. And I do that too. I agitate QAnon by teasing them because I think that's another way of disempowering them. But I also like to recognize the power of these seductive tools and some of these mediums, I don't know what mediums are. I don't know what they're doing. I tend to think, perhaps the naive side of me, I tend to think they're not making things up. I believe they genuinely think they are hearing voices and they are communicating with these concepts or whatever, you know. But I would argue that the tool of discernment of saying, well, which voices do you want to follow? Which intuitive impulses are the ones that are going to lead you to liberation? And which ones are just going to bind you to Maya for many more, many more lifetimes? That is a conversation within the spiritual community and within the wider social and political community that we need to be having about how seduced we are, how easily seduced we are into nonsense. And I think my optimism at this moment is in, I know I'm having this conversation with you today with much more transparency, honesty, and accountability than I would have a year ago regarding my past and my decisions and my involvement in different things. Because I see it as like the only way out of this is going to be honest, being honest about the ways we've succumbed to these types of things before. And my hope is that that will broaden. And just like Black Lives Matter has forced conversations into communities and into our homes, into our families, even though it's received pushback, it has forced those conversations in. I hope this battle with QAnon is doing the same thing where within our wider communities and, you know, and Trump in general going us really looking at ourselves and going, what's wrong with us? What is wrong with us? Something's obviously wrong with us. 
or we would not find ourselves in this situation. And it's very easy to point fingers externally and go, oh, it's because of them. It's because of them. They fell for Trump and they like the red hats and they are on meth or whatever it is, that, you know, or they're uneducated or they're racist and all of that stuff. There's a truth to it too. But what's wrong with us? We are a community, a society that has allowed this to happen. And I think that conversation, I still believe it has the potential for healing. If we can ask it honestly and answer it honestly, I think good can come from it. Thank you for listening to Conspirituality. You can find show notes, resources, and more at conspirituality.net. And stay in touch with us on Instagram at conspiritualitypod, on Facebook at conspiritualitypodcast, and at the same extension on YouTube as well. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where you will get access to weekly patron-only content. And we would truly appreciate your support if you're able to help. All music you hear on Conspirituality is by Earthrise Sound System, which is the partnership of David Duke Mushroom Shomer and myself, Derek Barris. See you next week, everyone.